this week's Oh Christ, I Don't Know What I'm Doing edition of Spin Cycle. Uh, but it's not all bad news. Um, in about 10 minutes, we'll be chatting to Anna Draffin, who is the CEO of the Public Interest Journalism Initiative. And we're going to get into some of the research that they've been recently doing into Australia's news sector and the contractions that it, um, that it's sort of suffered uh, since the COVID um COVID-19 pandemic started, and we're going to be talking about what that actually means, how it impacts the news that you get, uh, how it impacts regional centres and, and, the, and the, the media that they rely on. Uh, apart from that tonight, I mean, I've been uh, I've been away actually for the, from the show myself for the last couple of weeks. I've been I've been traveling all over the state, uh, covering the state election for for Crikey, my my day job. And I'm going to be getting into some of the some of the reflections that I've kind of come across in in, in that in those trips and and how. I suppose the kind of the, the some of the hysteria in the coverage of, of state elections doesn't always correspond with um, the things that are actually important to the people that, that kind of rely on that journalism for the decisions that they make. And um, if we have time, I'll be getting also into the uh, incredible recent drama featuring um, preference whisperer uh, Glenn Drury. Now, if you don't know who that is, uh, congratulations, you live a much more normal life than I do. But we'll be getting into some of the drama that he's been getting into with some of the minor parties he's been doing with deal, doing deals with in the lead up to the state election. Three, triple, So last month, the Public Interest Journalism Initiative put together their quarterly Australian News Data Report, showing that Australia's news sector has experienced the third largest market contraction within a single quarter since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, to talk us through what that actually means and the impacts that will have, we have the CEO of uh, the P of the Public Interest Journalism Initiative, Anna Draffin. Anna, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Charlie. Great to be here. Um, so I guess just to start off with, could you talk us a little bit through uh, what it is that the um, the IPJI kind of does and um, the work that you do, what you kind of seek to achieve, and, yeah, the kind of areas that you cover with your research? Uh, great. So PG is an independent specialist think tank. Our focus is on news as a public good and making sure that it's sustainable um, accessible, um, regardless of uh, economic means or geography for all Australians. Right, so, right. Oh, sorry, sorry, go on. So we, look at, so we look at news at different levels. So that's thinking about news, not only the big national uh, news producers, but down to the state and territory levels, regional, and right through to um, local and community news, particularly local, which we've seen how important that has been through all the recent uh, natural disasters and, of course, the pandemic. Absolutely, absolutely. And we'll, we'll kind of drill into all of those areas as we, as we go, I'm sure. But talk us through the results of this most recent report, the, um, the, the new sector contraction. So PG's been mapping and tracking data um, since 2019. So we've got um, really good uh, longitudinal data that's captured each month and really sort of three the headline findings um, out of the last quarter's reporting. So, firstly, um, we've seen that the market's contracted um, unsurprisingly in net terms over the last three years. Um, secondly, that regional Australia continues to be the most heavily impacted. So, um, for example, uh, there's been 119 uh, newsroom mass federal station closures over the last three years, which is about a 68% skew 
um, into regional and rural Victoria, so that's quite disturbing. Um, and then thirdly, we are seeing green shoots appearing, and I can talk to some more on that, um, but nonetheless volatility persists. As you alluded to, we've just seen the third largest trough since COVID hit, um, albeit in a certain part of the industry. So still just understanding the fragility of the news landscape um, in Australia is persisting, and that is actually a global trend in terms of Western democracy. So it's just showing that Australia's experience um, is not unique. Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, to, to get into one of the areas that you've been talking about, um, I, I've been spending a lot of time in the in regional Victoria over the last couple of weeks covering the state election, and, and so often you see that there is a single paper, often that services these towns, often with like one journalist or one editor, uh, maybe one or two journalists. I mean, talk to me a bit about the the reliance, I suppose, that these sectors, that these towns have on their papers and, and what it means when those sort of papers close down. So we all know that, you know, news is a really important part of ensuring that there's a working democracy, but also what's really um, rising in terms of awareness of recent years is actually a lifeblood of the community. Um, we repeatedly hear time and time again through research and just the lived experience of how important newspapers are to connecting communities. Um, and it is really thinking about all those um, what we refer to as public interest journalism pieces, so the local court reporting, local council reporting, right through to the news that binds communities together, which can be as simple as the latest health updates in amongst um, doctor availability, right through to, um, as we know, the death notices, etc., which is a really important part of, of um, binding communities together and engaging them. Right, yeah. And I suppose, um, to sort of go a little bit broader, I don't know if you saw the recent research from the Australian, uh, the Governance Institute of Australia, which found that the, the media was kind of seen as one of the least ethical se sectors uh, in Australia. Is this a little bit of a, a kind of circular process almost, that that the market contracts, the, the, the revenue contracts, the audience contracts, and then the quality of the journalism isn't as good, and then the trust drops, and that kind of cycle continues? Yeah, so it was interesting through uh, the early stages of COVID, we saw uh, huge surges in news consumption, um, both in Australia and globally, as people were looking for uh, quality um quality news that they were, knew were coming from trusted sources. So we saw both trust and consumption go through the roof through those um, initial lockdowns. And then what you've seen is that surge dropping off as we've settled into the sort of COVID era. Um, so it, that's not surprising. I think one of the other issues, too, that we're seeing is um, an emerging field of research and starting to see the evidence coming through is also the levels of media literacy and often you will find that um, within consumer data not necessarily understanding what you read on social media is not necessarily coming from um, a verified journalist news source. So there is a distinction, and I think really social media has blurred those lines as people don't necessarily stop to distinguish from the actual source from which they're getting their news.
And I suppose that does lead to the question, we are sort of watching potentially the slow motion kind of death of Twitter as a, as a sort of place where people get sometimes that kind of, uh, both, both kind of legitimate news, but also some of the more kind of questionable sources. Could the end of a platform like that, is, is there any potential for a silver lining? Could that lead people back to slightly more credible sources of news? Yeah, look, I absolutely think that there there is always going to be a place for um, for quality journalism, and and certainly having trusted sources. I think where we, um, as an industry, there's, there's um, more work to be done around awareness of professional standards and the distinction about around professional journalism as distinct from um, citizen journalism. Not to discount the latter, it's an important part of communications, um, particularly where there's gaps in news markets. But it's really building greater critical thinking. I think in amongst the reading public is probably a key part of this, as well as the industry itself also being even stronger on the front foot in amongst its professional standards. Right, right. And you did talk uh, in your sort of summary of, of the research that you were, you were seeing green shoots. Um, let's get into that a little bit more. What, what, what do they represent? So green shoots can be, as you alluded to, from where we've seen uh, a market withdrawal from the likes of ACM and News Corp, particularly in the regional markets in New South Wales and Queensland. We've seen expansions, for example, in Central West New South Wales with the Phoenix newspapers where they've expanded. Not all the experimentation has worked and we've seen a little bit of contraction, but equally we've seen um, small independent startups in Queensland in areas like Chinchilla and Roma um, and then the Today News Group, which has sort of spread its wings um, a little bit more into South and Central, Burnett, Rockhampton, Gladstone. So really what we're starting to see are those more localised market responses um, in this more to mid-tier businesses. Right, right. And I suppose, I mean, to go back to slightly slightly drearier um, news or, or slightly less positive news, I mean, when you see a contraction like this, obviously Australia has famously one of the most concentrated news markets in, in the world. Um, what does, how, how do we kind of, how are we doing, are we getting worse and worse with concentration? So as I say, it's appearing. So the volatility you know, is appearing in different parts of the market. So the latest contraction is largely attributable to um, print newspapers, which are still prevalent, particularly um, in regional areas and, and local newspapers. Um, and that's really arisen due to print escalation uh, or cost escalations um, that came came to market in the middle of the year, about beginning of July, and we were hearing reports from different um, print newspapers of costs increasing, for example, anywhere within the realm of sort of 20 to 80%. So we absolutely see in our data the immediate response to some of those price hikes um, where it was just no longer sustainable for those news for some newspapers to stay um, in circulation. However, what we're also um, had a really strong response from over the last couple of years is government intervention for those short-term shocks. So the government um, and the Albanese government has actually just recently. Uh, distributed $15 million across print publishers as a relief program 
to really ensure that more print producers, um, news producers don't go under as we really try to find other sustainable responses. So we would expect to see a slight uptick, hopefully, in the data as those grants start to really take effect. Um, of course, then the problem remains is what is the long-term solution um, when those grants finish up in about 12 months' time. Which I suppose does lead me to my next question, and it is a it is a, a thorny one, and there's probably a few different ways that we could go into it. But uh, from your perspective, uh, Pidgey, what, what would you say? What are some of the solutions that you guys could kind of hit upon in your research? So we're really interested in those sustainable levers that aren't just um, uh, grant programs. Grant programs absolutely are um, uh, a necessary tool, and particularly where you have. You know, one-off shocks. We also have JobKeeper, um, which in the main for a very quick, agile response for all its flaws, um, still nonetheless, as we know, um, was a huge prop to the economy. So you see similar things like that with the public interest news gathering uh, grant program that was also um, live during the first waves of COVID, which were essential um, for really helping the news industry navigate through those that first um, year and a half of COVID. But we're much more interested in looking at areas, for example, tax incentives and efficiency. Um, One piece of work that we've done where we've done the economic modelling and the legislative drafting is looking at the equivalent of a a research and development scheme um, that we have broadly for innovation, actually having a public interest journalism rebate to encourage news businesses uh, to reinvest in themselves and where they've got a genuine uh, public interest benefit in terms of the news that they're producing into a community, they would receive you know, anywhere between a 25 to 50% rebate. It is a it is a fascinating area, and obviously it's going to be something that we're going to be talking about for as long as Spin Cycle exists. Um, I will let you go there, Anna, because I know that you have a, an unmissable um, appointment in a few minutes. Oh, uh, really... my year eleven on the trombone! <laughs> exactly, I would not I would not make you miss that, and I really really do appreciate you making uh, some time with chat with us. And, and I'm, as I say, this is an area that, that Spin Cycle is going to be looking at many many times. So I'm sure we will have a chance to get into all the other areas uh, that we've kind of alluded to here about media literacy and, and, and sustainable model. So I will let you go, but thank you so much, Anna, for uh, making some time to chat with us. Thanks, Charlie. Really appreciate the interest. Thank you. Bye. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts, and via the app. So I thought I'd just quickly talk a bit about what I've been kind of up to as a reporter in the last couple of weeks. I I, I wasn't in... um, uh, I've been sort of traipsing all over the state, really, uh, covering the state election. Um, so I went down to the southwest coast. Uh, I went uh, up to Ararat, went round to uh, the Mornington uh, Peninsula, Rosebud, um, all th- three very tight seats, um, all, uh, all, all which could potentially change hands uh, in the coming election. And I think what really kind of stood out to me uh, when I was in these areas uh, is the disconnect between what we see on the front pages of a lot of the newspapers and what actually people give a toss about in the regions. I mean, there's a very good um, friend of the show and uh, our guest last week, Rachel Withers, does a really good summary of of the slightly cooked plot of the state election this time out with the um, uh, the 
Harold Sun's attempt to kind of dredge up this 2013 story that they also dredged up in 2017 regarding uh, Dan Andrews' wife and a, and a car accident that she was involved in. Um, then, of course, the the, the real uh, kind of crazed and conspiratorial coverage of the um, the steps that took down the premiere. I don't know if you have been following this, but essentially a lot of very vague allusions uh, and no real solid allegations of any sort making it onto the front page of the newspaper, uh, basically covering the idea that maybe not everything that happened when Daniel Andrews, the premier, sustained his very serious back injury back in March 2021, that perhaps we hadn't been told the whole story about what had actually happened. It's one of those stories that, um, unless you are completely on the wavelength already, it's basically incomprehensible. There are no allegations in it. Anyway, the the reason that I bring that up is that um, in Ararat, that's one of the major hubs of the seat of Ripon. Ripon is held by Louise Daly, who uh, is the former shadow treasurer, a liberal uh, candidate who um, has held the seat for the last eight years and in the last election held on to that seat by the the merest wafer of a, of, of a, um, of a margin. She held on to it by 15 votes. Um, the significance there, I suppose, is that she is one of the reasons that that story became mainstream. It had been something that had been sort of uh, rebounding around the internet and some of the muckier ends of the internet almost as soon as the news broke that, that Andrews had, um, had suffered this injury. Uh, it was a couple of months later that it was Staley's office that put out a press release, again, making no specific allegations, but asking a lot of very pointed questions and implying a great deal about the fact that we hadn't apparently allegedly been told the whole story about how Dan Andrews suffered this um, injury. I went to Ripon uh, to to cover that seat. Um, funnily enough, I, I did contact her office to see if she wanted to do an interview, but uh, she wasn't available. Um, she may have may have Googled Charlie Lewis and Victorian Liberal Party and found a few more instances of the phrase malfunctioning clown car than she she cared to deal with. But anyway, I, I watched her um, at a candidates forum that night in in, in Ararat, and and it, the funny thing was is that I was. No, shocked isn't the right word, but I was I was struck by the fact that um, she didn't come across as a crank or an eccentric or someone who was out of touch with the issues. She was actually quite a good performer, and she was across the the pitch and she was across the kind of policies. She had a lot of good rebuttals. Uh, Martha Hylett, who is the the Labour candidate down there, uh, up there, sorry, uh, was also also performed very well. But the point was. She didn't bring up any of the conspiratorial stuff that that had been brought into the media over the last year or so. And it just really did strike me that if that that performance was not for her constituents, if it was not for the people that she was trying to convince to vote for her or for the Liberal Party, I I, I just I, I struggle to understand who that actually was for. I was also in the South West Coast, where the seat is again held on quite a marginal, um, by quite a marginal rate by Rima Britnell, the the Liberal candidate down there, and I went to uh, the seat of Nepean, that was uh, in in Rosebud, where the, it's being held uh, again on a very very tight margin, uh, less than a percent, by the surprise winner, the Labour candidate last time, who kind of was swept up in the dance slide in 2018 and unexpectedly delivered into office. So these are all extremely tight key seats uh, for the coming election. And and not, again, not one of them, not one of the Liberal candidates um, tried to raise anything about 
how Dan Andrews sustained any injuries. They, they obviously don't think it's a winner with voters, and voters didn't ask about it. So again, I, I do wonder, who is this coverage in service of? Who is this supposed, what is this supposed to achieve? Um, uh, and as I say, if, if the, the candidates themselves aren't, aren't going for it and the voters aren't, then again, what, what is the actual purpose of that kind of journalism? The other thing I, I would note, um, which did strike me, was that um, I believe across the, the four events that I've been to so far, the name Matthew Guy, the, na- the leader of the uh, Liberal Party, has been mentioned once by one of the Liberal Party candidates. They obviously aren't um, pitching hard based on the leaders. To be fair, also, most of the references to Dan Andrews have come from Liberal candidates criticising him rather than the Labour candidates uh, spruiking him. Anyway, that is my, that is Charlie's election coverage corner. I just wanted to leave you with some interesting um, Victorian politics drama. Uh, Glenn Drury, who, if you don't know who he is, he's known as the, the Preference Whisperer. And he's gotten that nickname because he has a very um, uncanny and um, quite brilliant ability to manipulate, in, in, essentially, the upper house voting preference system, which has been allowing, for very many years, uh, micro-parties to get elected with a very, very low primary vote. I, I can't really... I, there isn't time, nor my, nor do I have the skill to explain it any, any more uh, in-depth than that. Um, he's always been something of a kind of content goldmine, I suppose. The um, I, I, When he got into the news again this week, I went back and looked up a time that my, my colleague at Crikey Guy Rundle um spoke to him uh for a different story i believe back in it may have been in, in western australia uh and the way that rundle put it is uh jury is someone who with no time to spare will give you 10 minutes three libelous stories about other candidates and never goes off the record ever if glenn broke down and said yeah that he pushed that one model off a cliff sometime he'd still stay on the record uh so victoria's legislative council the upper, the upper house in in victoria is the only place where he can kind of still ply his trade um it's the only place which still allows that special kind of voting which allows um, the micro parties to trade preferences in these ways, and what has happened in the last week is there's been a major falling out between uh, the Animal Justice Party, who, from the sounds of things, conducted what they said was an elaborate sting, basically on the process, because they said that they didn't agree with it. They managed to get all of the um, preferences flowed and then pulled out at the last minute of their kind of side of the deal. It's uh, led to a glorious Twitter war between various um, various minor party leaders. Um, I I should a, a, a um a language warning for the for the next couple of things. I realised that I did not give a single language warning, despite playing quite a lot of songs with with colourful language in it tonight. So I apologise if uh, if you were at all uh, offended by that. Um, Schultz, who is the leader of the Animal Justice Party in Victoria, told Drury to have a soot cunt in the form of a Simpsons meme, while Restored Democracy sack Dan Andrews Party founder uh, Tosh Jake Finnegan also said that Schultz can suck my whole dick and balls. And that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us every week on your favourite podcast platform. And you can follow us on Twitter at Sample, at Lily Juice, and at The Shuffle Diary. You can also listen in at rrr.org.au via On Demand for the radio version of the show. Want to support Spin Cycle? Become a Triple R subscriber. Your subscription helps keep the station running and helps Triple R produce and create great radio and podcast content like this.